All right, it's the speaker of the year that we've all been anxiously awaiting. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the 2017 inaugural speaker is uh, Dr. Neil Reynolds, uh, who's the associate director of uh, multi-trauma um, ICU and associate professor of medicine. Has lots of experience with telemedicine, so we'll be bringing him back later this year. Um, and uh, and wanted to talk about this important uh, topic of chronic critical critical illness as we're getting so much better at caring for patients in the acute resuscitation phase. We're left with this and uh, how we manage it, how we um, you know address the complex issues that surround the care of these patients is so crucial and underappreciated many times. So thank you, Neil, for talking. Good afternoon. Can you hear me? Wonderful. Should we wait another half hour till the rest of the people get here? Should we just get it started? I think we'll go. <clears throat> this is a, um, a talk. A couple years ago, the nurses asked me to do a talk, and they wanted me to entitle it Prevention of Chronic Critical Illness. I've taken that word out of, out of this, but we'll kind of have a little bent towards that as we move on here. This is stunningly soft science. The second thing about this is you already have been there, and all I'm going to do is give you some information that'll make you a little bit more comfortable when you're talking to families. As you know, that's where a lot of this ends up going. We have big, heavy-duty family conversations. So when I um, did this talk the first time, I wanted to talk a little bit about shock trauma. And I realized there's going to be a lot of people here who don't know a lot about shock trauma's history. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to look at some of the leadership. This guy was here when I first started. Give you an idea how long I've been here. So that's our Adams Cali. Um, Actually, he got kind of demented and things changed for him towards the end of his stay here. John Ashworth came along, who'd been very important developing shock trauma. We had a gentleman who tried to do some interim fill, and then there was a big um, uh, split with their argument with the University of Maryland. They brought in this guy whose last name is Maul, and you can imagine him mauling things, which was his job. And now we have this gentleman. I saw that Dean Reese just announced this is his 20th uh, anniversary being here. What's equally interesting is all of the le nursing leadership is encapsulated in that picture right there. This gal is um, Roberta Cowley. And sometimes you might see a, a painting out in the hallways that makes her look awful with big red lips. It's just a horrible picture of her. And of course, uh, Karen Doyle. All of our nursing leadership, which is spanning about 50 years, shock trauma is pushing around 50 years. They're all right there, just like you saw all the physician leadership on the last slide. These are actually the people who, in my opinion, make things work. And you probably know, all know those folks. So that's us. So we're going to talk about chronic critical illness. And I guess the uh, plan would be to define it and help us recognize patients with it and maybe describe some of the social problems along with it, morbidity, and what can we do about it? That's the big question. So this thing, this disease, has hit the public 
the lay press. This is an article, I forgot to get the uh, date on it, but let's say it's two years old because I did this talk two years ago. At any rate, it's gotten into the public press. I know 76 seems like they're almost dead anyway, but look at this. This is best tennis year of his life, 76 years old, a viable man who then gets West Nile infection. I don't have any of the details, but he doesn't go well for him. He ends up in a long-term acute care facility. He's out of his mind, and he's on a blower. That's chronic critical illness, and it's gotten into the lay press. Everybody knows this guy, Justice Stewart, and the, the quote about pornography. And I think it's probably a fair statement to say that you may not know exactly how to define it, and you're going to see I'm going to struggle a little bit, but yet we all know exactly what it is. It's um, the pornography, perhaps, of the ICU, if you will. Maybe that's a bad analogy. <laughs> Pretty awful stuff to deal with. Anyway, here is a definition. Patients who have survived the acute phase of critical illness but remain dependent on uh, mechanical toys or other sustaining therapies. You know, you can find these cartoons, and there's going to be a few of these cartoons in here, that people have drawn to try to, you know, at least describe critical, chronic critical illness. Well, two things keep coming is that they seem not to be healthy to begin with. Chronic comorbidities. And the second thing is they tend, not always, but tend to be older. And it can happen in basically any subspecialty. In the medical unit, surgical, trauma. At any rate, they get hurt. They get hurt in some way. In my world, it's trauma and often a secondary septus. And this is where they end up with a bunch of stuff. That's a cartoon that somebody thought was good. At any rate, maybe you define them by what they're dependent upon. And maybe they're dependent upon uh, hemodialysis, vasopressors, feeding tube. Maybe they just need a lot of nursing. Maybe they're stuck in the vent. Difficult wounds, etc., etc. The this phrase keeps coming up as I look through the literature. These people cannot, don't get better, can't get better, cannot seem to get better. That might be the definition you got. This is a compilation of several studies of patients believed to have chronic critical illness. And each study or each author had, in some cases, slightly different definitions. They focused on ventilator days. I thought 14 days of ventilator support was pretty, pretty puny, but we'll get to that. All the others took at least three weeks. My working definition has been four weeks, but you know, you can see this is soft stuff. But what is interesting is that. Here's that thing about being older. In all of their cases, the patient population was quite old or older. I'm not going to say quite old anymore. And Look at here, they didn't do very well. While you'll see this group had 11% going home, what I did is I went back, added up all the numbers, got the actual percent, less than four, about 4% 4 go home from the ICU. That doesn't mean they don't uh, ultimately go home, but we'll look at the data a little bit later. Risk of uh, becoming ventilator dependent. It's a little hard to get data that breaks 
um, that summates all the risk of developing chronic critical illness. But one thing is for sure that if you're badly injured, your risk of developing chronic ventilator dependence goes up with age. The actual number of patients goes down because more of them are dead. This might be the most meaningful slide I have here. It's too complicated. What I'm going to do is decode it for you and ask just to find some of the colors here. Now, white is good. White's good. Dark green, dark green is bad. You know, dead. That's bad. So somewhere, you know, white good, fair outcome, poor outcome, dead. Let's look at this group right here. It's a little hard to tell, but this green is that group. They are alive with complete functional dependency. And notice this is three months versus 12 months. So looking at this one group alone, of the people who at three months were highly dependent, a good fraction of them, and, well, let me back off, none of them get white, at least in this group. None of them get a good outcome. Three months might be a good uh, time to begin to say, this is really bad news. Three months, some are a good fraction are going to get worse. Most will stay the same, and a few will get a little better. Prognosis, once it's defined by three months, for good functional outcome is really poor. And if you have one take-home message, that's it. Growth in the number of people stuck on ventilators. Well, this is on the horizontal years, 2010, 2020, et cetera. And these are age-related. So yellow is 65 to 84. The total number of people in the older age group is just increasing. I won't say exponentially, but it's certainly rising fairly quickly. This thing. And how much does it cost in any way you want to measure it in terms of uh, years of life? cost per year of life or this quality thing, it's pretty significant. Um, here, I think we're breaking off at 60, 61, it's hard to say. At any rate, uh, look at there. Uh, cost a year's life, wow, 60,000 bucks, just for people on ventilators. So I think this really cost ineffectiveness, not cost effectiveness. Maybe another little number to look at is those people who have chronic critical illness. In this one particular study, I thought it was a little bit heavy, but they were finding 10% with chronic critical illness. In my world, in the trauma, I think we're lower. In the medical unit, it's probably higher than we are. At any rate, uh, the stunning thing is these people take, and you already know this, all this data you know, is they take a huge percentage of the ICU ventilate ICU days. Remembering that New Yorker guy who uh, had this 76 years old, best uh, year playing tennis, and he was out of his, excuse me, he was delirious and confused after he left. We all know this, our data is pretty clear on this. If you develop delirium in the ICU, your probability of survival goes down. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but could be a lot of facts. Now, I know that anecdotes don't prove, um, but they do kind of make the case. And I want to tell you about a couple uh, cases here. This is a 57-year-old gentleman who was uh, in our ICU here. And um, he came in. He was beaten up badly. A pedestrian stuck and dragged under a truck. Pretty horrible concept. At any rate, he gets entrapped. It's a long extrication time. He gets flown in here. 
His problems are not so much with being run over, but what he's uh, prepackaged with. He had hepatitis C. We were never sure whether it was because he was a drug addict or transfusion, who knows what. He had hepatitis C, and he was a major smoker. Those things may have been the biggest problem for him, more so than getting run over by the truck. At any rate, you can get a sense he had a whole bunch of injuries, a whole bunch. He had an injury severity score at time of admission, 41. He was born in 1958. In case uh, you, you don't think about injury severity scores every day of your life, so let's uh, line up 40. 40 comes up to a mortality of somewhere around 45, 50%. Just the injuries uh, have a significant mortality, and I tell you that I don't think that was his biggest problem. And it's always fun to see x-rays. Um, yes, humor, or femur is badly broken, humerus is broken, forearms broken, his chest is broken, his back is broken. He's broken. So, I'm, we're not, certainly not going to go over this. This is a gestalt slide. He had a lot of surgical procedures. Oh, I don't know, 25 or so during his stay in the hospital. A lot of beating. Hospital course, already mentioned the procedures. He went into acute renal failure. We put him on CRT for about a year and a half. He was very hyperbilirubinemic. We finally gave up the ventilator weaning, a trach. He never got off the ventilator. Infection after infection. His bowels, he didn't have a continuity of his GI tract. He's on TPN, and his wounds kept breaking down. This is really him. So. This is a time course going out somewhere beyond 37 days, but he had infect, initially got some antibiotics. I have no idea why they chose those two, perioperative stuff. Within eight days, he has his first white count up to 38,000, pretty significant, penicillin allergic, Astrianam and Vanco. He gets something that's called in pneumonia. He gets um, a, a bacteremia, and then he starts putting stuff in his peritoneum, and we call it peritonitis. Infection after infection. He had um, lungs that we could never clean up. These were big pleural effusions. You try to take the effusion off even by tapping it or diuresing it with the CRT. Didn't work. He's an older man, as we saw. He leaked. His bilirubin was so high that all of his fluids were yellow. Whenever he stained the sheets, his serous fluid was bilirubin. His edema, we couldn't do anything about it, couldn't make it go away, couldn't make it better, and of course he had the inevitable uh, kidney. That's what we do. At any rate, uh, lactate tracking over time. Uh, initial admission, he gets resuscitated, he bounces it up. I'm not exactly sure where 38 white count was, but it's somewhere in this range. Several episodes of hyperlactemia, um, white count. He's capable of getting a real serious white count. 30,000, 30,000, another 30,000 or so. He gets infected. I want to make sure you see the uh, scale. That's 40, bilirubin. Bilirubin peaks at 40. On a good day for him towards the end of whatever we did for him, it's still 12, 14, 15. That's a good day for this guy. Remember, he was prepackaged with hepatitis C. He could never generate very, uh, his synthetic ability making albumin was greatly reduced. 
The next cartoon is uh, kind of what people think is going on in the ICU. It's the multiple hit theory and it's the reserve theory. We'll try to uh, talk about that and speculate what that may mean, but the concept is with each hit, I don't know what this hit is, this could be trauma, this could be second, third, fourth infection, your reserve gets less and less, and if you don't have reserve, you cannot react appropriately to a bad infection and the stress. And remember, this guy had multiple hits. So I want to try and figure out what this reserve really is. So I looked at various organs, and uh, first off, we'll look at the hemodynamics. This, um, these two graphs, this is age on the horizontal, and VO2 max, but at any rate, some measure of cardiac function. What you'll notice here, by the way, little triangles are endurance-trained athletes. They're up here. And over time, they stay above the, that line, for the most part. Then you have the rest of the world, excuse me, sedentary down below. And we all know what happens to our heart rate, 220 minus your age or something or other. At any rate, this is that line that says you got no heart rate when you get to be 90. I don't know how that works. Anyway, um, maybe this is reserve. When you get septic, it's not a lot different than running. You have to have a metabolic response. You need to have your heart rate go up, your uh, stroke out, uh, cardiac output go up. If you can't do that, maybe that's one aspect of this phrase, losing or less reserve. When you look at your kidneys, you have the same sort of story. Everybody knows, by the way, this is uh, GFR here. Uh, not percentage. So if you come out of the cooker with a good GFR of 120, here you are 65, 70 GFRs down half. Maybe that's a measure of loss of renal reserve. Liver is really hard because I, most of us don't think about that. But there is a, a normal decrement in liver function apparently. And there's a couple ways it was measured. This is really weird for me, but at any rate, um, Functional hepatic flow, what they did is they took the portal, sum of the portal vein flow in the hepatic artery as a uh, surrogate of health of the liver, and what they found is what appears to be a decline in the total hepatic flow over time. Maybe that's a measure of declining hepatic function, or maybe just this decrease in hepatic size over time, 40% by time you're age 80. That's some data I'd never seen before but perhaps that's another one of the reserves that goes away. This is all about pulmonary function declining over time. So this is a perfectly average non-smoker. At any rate, uh, you can see this is the FEV1 liters. So let's say that's, uh, I don't know, four and a half when you're 25 and here you are at about two and a quarter normal person when you're 85. And then you take our smokers as the first gentleman was. Major loss of pulmonary function, more accelerated, and perhaps that is the reserve going away. I'm not sure why I put that there, but it's kind of cool. Okay, by comparison, I want to tell you about another patient. This girl, I'm going to call her a girl, you know, 60 years old. Does anybody know what a rongineer is? It's a French word. That's a hint. I don't know what it is either. It, it, it means, but I, you know, it's like the pornography. It means something like crazy people who ride their bikes one to 200 miles every weekend. 
every weekend. They're crazy. They're employed. They go to work, and on the weekends, they ride their bike a whole bunch. In this girl was a rongineer. So I think it's fair to say she was an endurance athlete. This is kind of close uh, to me, you know, part of the family. Anyway, uh, this girl gets hit intentionally by a, an SUV, described as silver if I remember, never found. At any rate, she was badly hurt. She's got a long list of injuries, just like her other, other friend. A lot of injuries. And you know, her ISS score at time of admission was even higher, and her age is greater. And sure, she had all sorts of radiographic things were quite abnormal. She's got some long bone fractures, some brain injuries. Um, I can't remember the details. I think she had subarachnoid stuff up here, and there's a sacral fracture, and obviously blunt chest trauma. So this girl went through a long litany of hospital procedures. She had multiple hits. This is almost identical graph as you saw before for the other guy. Uh, <clears throat> she didn't seem to develop the huge white counts, but she was on antibiotic after antibiotic after antibiotic. But looky here, discharged home. Actually, she didn't go home. She did go to rehab, and then she went home. And she kind of looked, well, not quite so bad. Her lactate doesn't jump up quite as much. Her white count doesn't go quite as much. And I want to show you the bilirubin. Look at the scale here. That's only eight, I guess it is. Eight and a half, nine, whatever. She didn't have that problem with the sustained, horrible hyperbilirubinemia. Her albumin wasn't a hell of a lot better, but it was measurably better. It would seem as if you take these factors and suggest what is the difference between between people who get the chronic critical illness versus those who had, by all odds, should have developed it. Maybe it's something to look at these folks with the decreased um, pulmonary reserve. Perhaps they're more likely to end up in the ventilator. I think that's sort of intuitive. Those with the decreased hepatic function, perhaps they don't know how to deal with their drugs as well. Uh, their synthetic capability goes down. I put the arrow the wrong way, didn't I? And maybe their wound healing is worse when they have worse liver function. I'm going to skip over that for a minute. Nutrition, the other guy did get the parenteral nutrition, and we know that's associated with more infections. Some people think maybe more inflammatory response, and maybe he just had the wrong parents. Perhaps he had something wrong with the SERS response. So here's my third cartoon. I got these cartoons out of the literature. I didn't make them up. This is, so I went to the literature. I found these guys, and they told us exactly how to take care, actually how to prevent chronic critical illness. And here you are. Um, let's see, get them off the ventilator. <laughs> Feed them. Don't let them go crazy. Prevent infections. And then, I think, <laughs> initiate palliative care. This cartoon left me totally hollow. But this may end up being where we're at. But let's see if we can take anywhere further. Now, I kind of actually like this one. We've mentioned there's an age problem here. And perhaps we have to talk about rationing care and maybe euthanize early and often. And we get all those bums over 55 and we just get rid of them because 
this is what's happening. This is uh, years over time. And we're getting inundated, flooded, with the people at high risk of chronic critical illness. So I think, number one, on the prevention, do not admit people over 55. And if you do, get palliative care. How am I doing so far? So this guy came to this room, what was it, two years ago? And he came and said, we have the answer. I am not kidding you. This gentleman said, we have the answer. We now understand the inflammatory response. Was there anybody here who was around when uh, tumor necrosis factor came out? So the guys who either have no hair or it's gray if they have it. Not you. Anyway. TNF was the answer. Oh my God, we've discovered TNF. This is going to be the answer, and all we got to do is something. So bind it up or, or filter it off or something. TNF, we're going to solve this problem. So this feller in 2014 came here and said, well, we have it. It's mitochondrial DNA or damage-associated molecular patterns. And just to remind everybody, these mitochondria are cool little gizmos. Who knows where they come from? Some people thought they were saprophytic bacteria that became endosymbionts. Can you say that? Can you say that? Yeah, it's tough. At any rate, ultimately intracellular organelles that have the ability to release things that can be inflammatory. And he told us all we need to do is figure out how to uh, regulate the damps. And here's maybe some of the ideas. I'm being a little facetious because he was way over my head, but I was stunned at the confidence that we have the answer. Anyway, back to the real world. So there's probably a damps expert in here, and he's going to beat me up at the end. But uh, anyway, um, maybe there's something about managing the hypercatabolism of sepsis. Is there? Other than people with either no hair or gray hair, do any of the young people do your uh, nitrogen balances? You're excluded, I told you. At any rate, there was a time, and you mentioned this um, when we had that lecture a couple of weeks ago. We used to do a lot of nitrogen balance, and if you don't know what it's all about, you won't appreciate these numbers. But normal people eating a normal number of hamburgers and steaks a day excrete 8 to 12 grams of urea in the urine. And they're in equilibrium because they're losing a, uh, a marker of protein about as much as they put in their, their pie hole, in, as much as they eat. So what we found, though, is the catabolic people, and it doesn't matter which uh, steady state they're in. If they're in the steady state without dialytic support and their BUN, say, 70, versus those on dialytic support, Turns out that in this study, they're all excreting about 28 or 27 grams of urea as being excreted or cleared per day. That's a measure of catabolism. Now, we know from the head injured patients, uh, they develop a, oh, people call it neurogenic storming or uh, a hyperadrenergic state in the uh, head injured patients, and we use, them, use beta blockers, perhaps blocking the peripheral effect of these uh, circulating uh, uh, catecholamines. Maybe that's an answer here. I know of nobody who's thinking to do that, and I'm not recommending it, but I'm suggesting that you keep an eye on this catabolic state that all of these people seem to develop. I sort of said that. 
and we've sort of said this. Everybody, I think we all recognize that we would ideally or prefer to do uh, enteral nutrition over parenteral nutrition, and maybe that was one of the big factors in our man who carried a lot of comorbidities around. And you know, this, this chronic critical illness is not just only about the patients. We had a talk here a year or a year ago about the family syndrome, and I forgot what he called it. But this is one of his uh, several slides. But ultimately, the families are impacted by chronic critical illness. And whoa, the family depressive symptoms were greater in, in, uh, when their loved one had CCI, more so than Alzheimer's, kind of maybe an expected disease, I don't know, or spinal cord injuries, pretty stunning. And most of them had to change their work pattern either work less or quit altogether. A huge impact on the families. Well, I'm gonna, actually, we're moving right along here. I'm gonna slow down. Um, I wanna take a little trip here to the side. Talk a little bit about feudal care. We know, somewhat like the pornography that we talked about before, there is a fraction of our patients who have, it is futile when we get them in the ICU. And by the way, everybody knows these numbers, I guess. Uh, critical care medicine, 20% of health care costs, 1% of the GDP, uh, mean cost in an ICU, four grand. At any rate, this little study, I'm not even going to try to uh, pronounce that name, about uh, 1,200 patients, a fair number of ICUs, and they asked the people, what do you think of your patients? Are they futile, maybe, or definitely futile? And you can see that they summed up 19, almost 20% of the patients were probably or definitely futile care. It happens. And we could kind of define futile care as such that whatever we do doesn't give the patient major benefit. They will never reach their own goals. Death may be imminent, may not. And the patient probably would not survive, survive out the ICU. So that'll be a working definition for feudal care. So we'll describe a, we're gonna make sort of a Venn diagram, except I'm gonna stretch it out horizontally. Um, starting with feudal care, how does chronic critical illness uh, fit in here? These are the people that have prolonged something or other support. And it may be, in fact, that we're not exactly sure how many of those are indeed futile. However, looking at some of the early data where we suggested a high fraction of these people will get worse or die, maybe a high fraction of these people at time zero, whenever that is, are in fact futile. So we've from the anecdotes we presented here, we know that there are some patients who have prolonged life support, and by golly, they get better. I have not seen people talk about a syndrome of prolonged critical illness, alike we're seeing literature about chronic critical illness, but it is perhaps something we need to at least recognize how some of these people who are prolonged evolve into chronic critical illness and some become uh, futile. So here's what we're gonna to do to prevent chronic critical illness. Here's the um, final slide here. This is it, the answer. Remember the first cartoon with the boxes? Do all the things you've already been doing for the last several years? Well, keep doing that. 
don't get old and no elders in the ICU, that'll probably be a big factor. If we can get a grip on the basic science of mediators, uh, if we could control catabolism, early enteral nutrition, pick your parents wisely. But more, what I think may be one of the biggest things is right now, every one of you, stop abusing your body, maintain your reserve in preparation for your chronic critical illness attempt. So I was up at a hospital and there managed where they had this patient satisfaction problem. And they gave us these smiles on a lollipop stick. They really did. And they said, you know, put it on your face when you walk in. And I said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. At any rate, I did it. Every, almost every single patient smiles. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. And so I figured that might actually be something about uh, uh, patient satisfaction, and maybe that's the answer to chronic critical illness. That's all I have to say. How's that for awesome time? Anything I can try to answer? I want to go with your, your, your wit here, then. Are you going to pass on your recommendations for prevention to the Republican Congress and the administration for their, their replacement for the Affordable Care Act? Thanks, Sam. I have no answer to that. Uh, yeah, I remember when the Affordable Care Act was evolving and the death panels were being talked about. And to a real degree, um, maybe there is a place for people to have realistic, mature conversations about end of life. And we do it all the time, and yet we can't say death panels. Um, I don't know. Thank you very much. Did you come across anything about um So I think the question is, do we find did I find literature on social support? And I think what you're saying, did it have an impact and hopefully positive? You know I didn't even think to do that uh, search, and that's an interesting idea. Uh, it is curious. The first man we presented had a um, really pretty strong family, and they were all gung-ho for us to do everything. You've heard that before, I'll bet you. The second patient, the Ronjanier, remember that French word? She had incredible family support, a uh, husband who probably quit his job to be here, judging from how much he was. No, I think that's an interesting idea. I don't know if anybody else has an opinion on that. Uh, I can conceive of that as being important. You know, I think for us, the sense of this is one of your really important slides. It probably doesn't have that much to do with chronic illness, but it might. The whole aging thing and how all our organ systems eventually slow down. And I think oftentimes our fellows and our MPs and such always trying to drive for excellence in some of these organ systems where really you're never going to get excellence in these organ systems. And I think that sometimes contributes to doing more and more and more for patients that you really should be doing. You know, keeping the PAO2 at 60 is probably okay. You know, kidneys hit, take a little hit, it's probably okay. But we try to do all these things, and I think sometimes we contribute to that, the conveyor belt of interventions that probably don't need to be done. But 
up in orders, and that's where I think. But I, I really do think we strive sometimes for normal numbers of 30 year olds, and what it says about it, not normal numbers of 70 year olds. Yeah, I think that's probably a good point, and that wasn't where I was going. I'm, I just wanted to wrestle with that one word, reserve, and try to get a grip on it. And whether I've given you a convincing story, there is some uh, sort of aging pathology there. But yeah, we probably want too much. Yeah. One, one interesting thing, if, uh, for those of you that re recall a uh, university specialty hospital, get uh, folks in a trade play there for you know a year or however long. You know, maybe they just look a little fun, maybe tachycardic up to one fifteen sent in for evaluation, a little hypoxic transient like, you know, lo and behold these individuals, you know, within twenty four hours have two attitude blood cultures to ask me to back her. And so the, an interesting uh, component of, of some of these chronically critically ill individuals um, is the uh, immune tolerance that, that may exist in some of the work. You know, things that a fraction of the insult that they may see on a regular basis may kill us because of our exuberant inflammatory response or whatever. Um, it, it's kind of interesting how they many times can tolerate, kind of, uh, they may not get better you know, in, the, in the big picture, they um, sometimes can tolerate um, some really bad insults in the acute Yeah, I don't know how to comment on that, but um, yes. I wish this, for me, the, the big deal here is us dealing with the social expectations of the family and making sure, I'm going off on a different tangent here, but helping them understand what they can expect. And it's hard for them to get a grip often that dad's sitting or mom's sitting there and they are alive and you're telling me that there's an extremely high percentage chance they're gonna be dead in a year and yet you're discharging them? I don't get it. They're gonna go downhill and you're sending them to a lower level and yet uh, that's what we have to do. We don't have an answer to most of this stuff. Okay guys, any other questions? All right, thank you very much.